Call this meeting of the Foreign Relations Committee to order. <clears throat> and I want to thank General Allen for being here. I know he has a hard stop today at 3.30 and that uh, I think he has meetings with CENTCOM later that he's traveling to, but I want to thank him for being here and I'll properly introduce him in just a moment. The President has uh, sent forward a request for the authorization for the use of military force. Um, because of the nature and, and, and the way that this has happened in that the conflict has been ongoing for about six months now, I think one of the things that most people here are concerned about is that uh, there's a level of confidence in what we're doing and that it's going to achieve uh, the stated goals that the President has laid out. And I don't know of anybody more equipped to come before us today than, than General Allen, who's <clears throat> served our country with great, with great distinction. I think many people feel decently uh, well about what's happening in Iraq. I think there are a lot of questions relative to Syria. My sense is today you'll have a number of questions regarding that. And we hope that what you'll do, General Allen, is give us an honest assessment as to the end state that we'd like to see happen in Iraq and Syria when we complete the activities that we're involved in and understand the political and military strategy that we have uh, underway and to give us a little sense of time frame relative to the various um, activities that are necessary. I was just in uh, Iraq last week in both Baghdad and uh, Erbil with our Kurdish friends and then over in Ankara with our Turkish friends. And I will say that uh, the Shia militias are everywhere in Iraq, as people know. Uh, General Soleimani, who was, who was head, head of the Quds Force for Iran, is now become a celebrity in Iraq. And uh, I have to say it uh, feels very strange to be there knowing that much of the activity that we have underway, while it's necessary, uh, is really to Iran's benefit. And I know there's a lot of concerns that after this activity is completed, if we're successful with ISIS, which I know we will be, uh, in essence, the next uh, issue is going to be dealing with security of our forces there uh, with the Shia militias. I was uh, uh, happy to see that Turkey has uh, gone ahead and signed an agreement, train and equip agreement. I'm sure that's something that you have made happen, and thank you for that. At the same time, I know there's a lot of concerns right now about how we deal with Assad's barrel bombs as we train and equip uh, these individuals. Um, how do we protect them from the barrel bombs, which cause them to diminish in greater number than they can be trained. And I'm sure that you're going to talk about that. Uh, there's a lot of discussion, as you know, on the ground there about an air exclusion zone. I know you have some questions about that and just uh, no-fly discussions that may be taking place to draw Turkey more into what's happening in Syria itself, which I think most of, it, most of us believe is, is very important. So as, we, uh, as I close, I just want to say we owe it to our nation as we consider this to know that the full range of America's elements of national power, diplomatic, economic, and military means are aligned, aligned in such a way uh, to, to get to the administration's stated goals. Um, because of the nature of this decision, um, one, again, this being made after a fact, uh, all of us need to have confidence that the administration is truly committed to achieving the stated goals that they've laid out, and I think your testimony here is going to be very valuable to us. And with that, I'd like to turn to our distinguished ranking member, uh, Senator Menendez, who's been a great partner on all of these issues. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for calling the hearing. And 
for our work forward on this. And, and General Allen, welcome back to the committee, and thank you for your distinguished service to our country in so many different ways, including your present uh, position as a special envoy. Uh, although this hearing is not focused on the administration's proposed authorization for the use of military force against ISIL, it is by nature an opportunity to probe the dynamics of our current anti-ISIL strategy that will inform our discussion of an AUMF, and specifically whether strategy that relies on U.S. air power and logistics intelligence and training support, but not on U.S. troops on the ground, would be successful in achieving our ultimate goal to end the barbaric rampage of ISIL. There are those who believe that it is up to our local partners on the ground to ultimately take uh, this war across the finish line. I've heard from others who believe that ISIL can be defeated, uh, cannot be defeated without a significant U.S. ground commitment. So I'd like to hear from you, General Allen, where you come down on what will be required to eradicate ISIL, given that we hear reports from Secretary Carter's meetings in Kuwait that while the anti-ISIL strategy does not require fundamental recalibration, our coalition partners can be doing more. Um, my view, personally, is that the United States must help combat ISIL and restore stability to the region, and we must follow through on our commitments to our Arab partners, but large-scale U.S. ground forces at this time in this complex political and military atmosphere would, at the end of the day, decisively increase the prospect of losing a long war. Now, I appreciate and want to salute all the men and women uh, who are waging uh, a campaign against ISIL, particularly from the air, all of the airstrikes that have, according to your own testimony, inflicted significant damage, and those are promising, and we salute the men and women who do that. But our effectiveness in combating this threat, I think, cannot be measured only in the number of sorties flown or bombs dropped. So today's hearing is a welcome opportunity to step back and assess the big picture the state of the coalition, what will it ultimately take to defeat ISIL, and what we know, I think, will be a multi-year effort that will take billions of dollars, significant military assets, and the painstaking patience of diplomacy matched to all of those efforts. We look forward to your insights, and uh, we welcome you back to the committee. Our distinguished witness today is General John Allen, the Special Presidential Envoy for Global Coalition to Counter um, ISIS. General Allen is a retired U.S. Marine four-star general, former commander of ISAF and U.S. forces in Afghanistan. Upon his retirement from the Marine Corps, he was appointed uh, as the senior advisor to the Secretary, Secretary of Defense on Middle East Security. He is currently on a leave of absence from the Brookings Institution, where he is co-director of the 21st Century Security and Intelligence Center. Um, we thank you for your frankness. We thank you for your service to our country. We thank you for being here today. I know you're going to have a, an unusually long opening comment, which we appreciate, and then we'll turn to questions. Chairman Corker, thank you, and Ranking Member Menendez, uh, it's good to be back today. Esteemed members of the committee, I want to thank you for providing me the opportunity to update you on the progress of the global coalition to counter ISIL. And let me just add as well, my deep and sincere thanks for all that this committee has done for our Department of State, for our diplomats, and for the members of the department who are serving with such great courage and capability at the far-flung locations of American influence. Uh, this committee has done marvelous work to support them, and I want to thank you very much for that. 
Uh, I just returned to Washington yesterday afternoon from Kuwait, where at the request of Secretary of Defense Ashton Carter, I joined a group of more than 30 senior U.S. diplomats and military commanders uh, for a wide-ranging discussion on our counter-ISIL strategy. While my role as senior uh, special presidential envoy is concerned with the consolidation and the integration of the coalition contributions, not the coordination of its military activities, I remain nonetheless closely synced with my colleagues in the military, and we meet regularly with other departments and agencies involved to review the progress of the counter-ISIL activities. In addition, we're also discussing the coalition's next steps now that we've largely achieved the objectives of the campaign's first phase, which was to blunt ISIL's strategic, operational, and tactical momentum in Iraq. Through over 2,500 uh, coordinated coalition airstrikes in support of our partners on the ground, we've degraded ISIL's leadership, its logistical and operational capabilities, and we're denying it essential sanctuary in Iraq from which it can plan and execute attacks. With New Zealand's very welcome announcement yesterday that it will provide military trainers to build the capacity of the Iraqi security forces, a dozen coalition nations now participating in these efforts are operating from multiple sites across Iraq. Still, the situation in Iraq remains complex, and the road ahead will be challenging and nonlinear. Considering where we were only eight months ago, one can begin to see how the first phase of the strategy is delivering results. As I appear before this esteemed committee today, it's important to recall that in June of last year, ISIL burst into the international scene as a seemingly irresistible force. It conquered a city, Mosul, of 1.5 million, then poured south down the Tigris River Valley towards Baghdad, taking cities and towns and villages along the way. Outside Tikrit, it rounded up and massacred over 1,000 Iraqi army recruits. And to the west, it broke through the border town of Al-Qaim and poured east towards Baghdad. ISIL's spokesman, Abu Muhammad al-Adnani, vowed, quote, the battle will soon rage in Baghdad and in the holy city of Karbala, unquote. Shortly thereafter, ISIL launched a multiple prong attack further into northern Iraq, massacring minority populations, enslaving hundreds of women and girls, surrounding tens of thousands of Yazidis on Sinjar Mountain, and opening a clear route to Erbil, the region's capital. Then the United States acted. Since our first airstrikes in August, ISIL's advance has been blunted, and they have been driven back from the approaches to Baghdad and Erbil. ISIL lost half of its Iraq-based leadership, thousands of hardened fighters, and is no longer able to mass and maneuver effectively and to communicate as an effective force. Iraqis are also standing on their feet. The Kurdish Peshmerga have recovered nearly all of the ground lost in August, and the Peshmerga have also taken control of the Mosul Dam, the Rabia crossing with Syria, the Sinjar Mountain, Zumar, and the Kissick Road Junction, which eliminated a supply route for ISIL from Syria to Mosul. These forces also broke the siege of the Beji oil refinery and have begun to push north into the Tigris Valley. To the west, Sunni tribes are working with Iraqi security forces to retake the land in the heart of Al-Anbar, a land I know well. And just last week, under the cover of bad weather, ISIL launched an attack on the town of Al-Baghdadi, near the Al-Assad Air Base in Al-Anbar, where our forces are located with the Danes and the Australians to help to train Iraqi soldiers and tribal volunteers. 
ISIL, as it has done over and over again, rampaged through the town, killing civilians and driving hundreds of families into the safe haven of the airbase. But the Iraqis did not sit idle. They organized and fought back. Prime Minister Abadi went to the Joint Operations Center in Baghdad and ordered an immediate counterattack. The Minister of Defense flew to al-Assad to organize available forces. An Iraqi army commander sent an armored column from Baghdad to road march to al-Baghdadi to join the attack. And Sunni tribal volunteers organized to support and in some cases led the attack. Today, much of al-Baghdadi is back in the hands of these local and tribal forces. And as I was at al-Assad just last month and my deputy, Brett McGurk, was there just three days ago, I would tell you that all Americans would be proud to see what our troops are doing there, helping the Iraqis and the tribes to join the battle against ISIL. But this is only the start, and ISIL will remain a substantial foe. But any aura of the invincibility of ISIL has been shattered. ISIL is not invincible. It is defeatable, and it is being defeated by Iraqi forces, defending and taking back their towns and their cities and ultimately their country with the support of the United States and the coalition. And importantly, very importantly, the aura of the so-called caliphate is destroyed, and the future of the so-called caliph, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, is very much in doubt. Because we lack the same kind of partners on the ground in Syria, the situation there is more challenging and more complex. But still, we're working closely with regional partners to establish sites for training and equipping vetted and moderate Syrian opposition elements to train approximately 5,000 troops per year for the next three years. These and other military aspects of the campaign will inevitably receive the most attention. But as I've seen in the four previous coalition efforts in which I've been involved, it will ultimately be the aggregate pressure of the campaign activity over multiple mutually supporting lines of effort that will determine the campaign's success. This is why when I visit a coalition capital and when I meet with a prime minister or a king or a president, I describe the coalition's counter-ISIL strategy as being organized around multiple lines of effort. The military line to deny safe haven and provide security assistance, disrupting the flow of foreign fighters, disrupting ISIL's financial resources, providing humanitarian relief and support to its victims, and counter-messaging or defeating the idea of ISIL. Since mid-September, I've traveled to 21 partner capitals, several of them multiple times, to meet with national leadership there. And in that short span, we have assembled a global coalition of 62 nations and international organizations. Of the many recent visits, leaders have expressed heightened concern for the immediate and generational challenge presented by foreign fighters, and rightly so. Through capacity building in the Balkans, criminal justice efforts in North Africa, and changes to laws in more than a dozen countries, partners are working together to make it more difficult for citizens to fight in Syria and Iraq. Even with this, these expanded measures, foreign fighters continue to make their way to the battlefield. We must continue to harmonize our border and customs processes and promote intelligence sharing among our partners. This kind of information sharing has also allowed the coalition to make significant gains in synchronizing practices to block ISIL's access to banks within the region and globally. This includes stemming the flow of private donations and restricting ISIL's ability to generate oil revenues. We're now expanding these efforts to counter ISIL's access to local and informal financial networks. The coalition is also supporting the United Nations efforts to provide food and aid and supply critical and supply critical assistance to protect the vulnerable 
children and women and men from harsh winter conditions in the region. The ravaged communities ISIL leaves in its wake bear witness to ISIL's true identity, one we're actively working with coalition partners to expose, with Arab partners taking a leading role. ISIL was attractive to many of its recruits because of its proclamation of the so-called caliphate and the sense of inevitability that it promoted. The last six months have amply demonstrated that ISIL is really operating as a criminal gang and a death cult, which is under increasing pressure as it sends naive and gullible recruits to die by the hundreds. Coalition partners are working together as never before to share messages, engage traditional and social media, and underscore the vision of religious leaders who reject ISIL's millennialist vision. As the President announced recently, we're partnering with the United Arab Emirates to create a joint messaging center that will contest ISIL's vigorous information offensive and extremist messages for the long term. And we're seeking to create a network of these centers, a global network, where regional consortia of nations can, can dispute and ultimately dominate the information space filled with ISIL's messaging. The President has outlined a framework for the authorities he believes will be necessary to pursue this long-term campaign with his formal request to the Congress for the authorization for the use of military force against ISIL. The AUMF request foresees using our unique capabilities in support of partners on the ground instead of through large-scale deployments of U.S. ground forces. The President has asked for flexibility to fight an adaptable enemy, one that hopes to expand his reach beyond the borders of Iraq and Syria. Taking the fight to ISIL requires that we be flexible and patient in our efforts. It also requires close coordination with this committee and with the Congress so that we are constantly evaluating our tactics and our strategy and that we are resourcing them appropriately. Chairman and Ranking Member Menendez, I thank you for the opportunity to be before this committee today and to continue that process of coordination and consultation with you. And I look forward to taking your questions. We thank you for the testimony and, and uh, for your great service to our country. Yesterday, Senator Kerry testified that he felt like that today the administration already has, because of the 01 AUMF and the 02 AUMF, the authority to conduct the operations that are being conducted against uh, in Iraq and Syria. Do you, do you agree with that assessment? I do, Chairman. Okay. So it's an interesting place that we find ourselves where six months after conflicts have begun, um, a new AMF, AUMF is being offered, and I know that in order to pursue one properly through Congress, that's the standard process, uh, which I appreciate. Um, but it's an interesting place that uh, those authorities already exist. The train and equip program that you've been able to negotiate, many concerns have been um, raised about the fact that most of the Free Syrian opposition initially uh, was targeting Assad. That was the reason for them being. Now we're, we're organizing these against ISIS. In my understanding, we're, we're going against an entirely different recruitment group to do that. Are we finding that uh, to be an easy recruitment process? We, as we began this, Chairman, we weren't sure, frankly, uh, how that recruitment process would unfold. Uh, just two days ago, I had the opportunity uh, to uh, have a conversation with the, the great soldier that the United States has put against this challenge, uh, General Nagata. And I won't go into the details of the numbers. Uh, but the numbers are much higher than we thought, actually. Uh, and it's been a very encouraging uh, 
uh, we've had an encouraging sense that there is an interest yeah. uh, in, this, uh, in this outcome. So my sense is there, there are, based on my experiences last week, there are larger groups of people that are willing to go against ISIS initially in this training, train or quit program than some initially thought. Is that correct? That is correct, Chairman. So let me ask you this question. One of, the, one of the big moral dilemmas, I think, is that as we train and equip these folks, we know that Assad is, in fact, uh, barrel bombing other members of the Free Syrian Army today. I know that's a loose description of who it is that's opposing him. But my understanding is there have been significant discussions with Turkey over an air exclusion zone in, in the northwestern Aleppo area and a no-fly zone along the border. And that's been the issue that's hindered them actually getting more involved in the conflict, even though they're working with us more fully than they have in, in multiple areas, some of which I won't mention here. That has been the, the issue that has kept them from, from actually uh, getting more involved. It's also my understanding that that decision, the decision to do that, is, is at the President's desk. It's at the White House, and he has not made a decision yet as to whether to engage. Can you update us on that or tell us the effect of that decision not being made uh, on Turkey getting more involved in the conflict and helping us with those ground operations you were talking about earlier? Well, I'll start by uh, you know, reciting what I've said before with respect to Turkey, and it is we have an old friendship with Turkey, and they are an ally. And where uh, we began this conversation just some months ago and where we are today, I think there's been significant progress uh, in the conversation about uh, Turkey's role in the coalition and all that we want to accomplish together, uh, and in particular, uh, what we would like to accomplish in Syria. That conversation isn't over. Uh, but there has been much progress. Uh, I just met with, the, with a, a Turkish delegation yesterday, and I intend to uh, head back to Ankara in the, in the very near future to continue that conversation. And part of that conversation, obviously, uh, is uh, those measures or are those measures mm -hmm. uh, that can be taken either collectively or uh, uh, by a larger coalition uh, to, to provide protection for the moderate Syrian elements that we support and ultimately will produce over time. Uh, and I, I won't get into the specific details of the negotiation, but that is a very important part of the conversation, and we're going to continue that conversation in the future. But, th but it is fair to say that there are some significant decisions that our government needs to make relative to those protections, and if they're made, could uh, break, break uh, uh, a little bit of a logjam relative to greater involvement by Turkey. That would be a fair assessment. Is that correct? It's, it is a fair assessment, Chairman. And I, the, the details of, of uh, uh, what that conversation can be can lead us in several different directions. Yeah. Uh, there was the uh, initial conversation about a formal no-fly zone, which, which, uh, uh, which was very heavily or very specifically and purposefully laid out on a map. Uh, the real issue isn't necessarily a no-fly zone. It's how do we protect our allies. That's right. Uh, and that's the nature of the conversation. And putting all measures necessary to be able to provide for that, attack, that protection is the heart of the conversation that we're going to continue to have with the Turks. And one final question. I'll stop and turn it over to Senator, Senator Menendez. Um, in the event that we needed to protect uh, those that we're training and equipping and other members of the Free Syrian Army, in the event we needed to protect them against Assad barrel bombing them, do you believe that that is something that needs an additional authority other than what is now being requested? Um, I would have to study that, Chairman. I, uh, 
my hope is that we'd be able to provide the, the kind of protection that they need and they deserve uh, within the authorization that, that we're currently proposing. You would want to make sure that we knew that that type of uh, authorization was a part of anything we may do. Well, I think so. Yes, sir. That, that would, that's going to be clearly a part of uh, the outcome. Okay. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, General Allen, you're a retired U.S. Marine four-star general. You were the former commander of NATO's International Security Assistance Force and the U.S. forces in Afghanistan for about a year and a half. And then you became the senior advisor to the Secretary of Defense on Middle East security. You commanded during that period of time 150,000 U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan during a critical period of the war. And I, lay, I put that out there, one, in recognition of that service, and two, in also the framework of my question. What does enduring, no enduring combat forces mean? Well, I think, uh, obviously, the, the nature of the contingency or the emergency or the potential conflict will give us the indications of what kinds of measures would need to be taken in the aggregate uh, to deal with that emergency, uh, to give the President uh, the kinds of options that he needs in order to protect the lives of American citizens and American interests and the homeland. Each one of these emergencies will be different. Uh, each one will require a different uh, aggregation of American hard and soft power ultimately to solve them. And so I think it's, it would be uh, difficult to put necessarily uh, a level of precision against the word enduring. I think uh, what, we seek, what we'll seek to do, uh, and I believe this administration uh, and future administrations would be obviously very interested in consulting with the Congress uh, about each particular I, emergency. I, I appreciate the consultation. The problem is uh, you, you reference your answer in the context of emergencies. But no enduring offensive combat troops doesn't necessarily only apply to emergencies. Uh, if you send 20,000 troops in there, they're four months. Is that enduring? Uh, again, Senator, I think that uh, trying to put a specific amount of time on the word enduring. Uh, so it's neither time nor size. Well, I think we take a full appreciation of what we're facing. Okay. And I, and I believe that we give the President uh, the options necessary in order to deal with the emergency. And enduring might only be two weeks, but enduring might be two years. I think we need to ensure that we uh, put the right resources against the contingency and give us the amount of time necessary, us being all the American people, the time necessary to solve the problem. And I think you've honestly stated the, the challenge that we have. Uh, Two weeks is one thing, two years uh, is another. And this is the problem with the language as it exists. It, there is no clear defining element of the authorization given to the President uh, in which hundreds, but maybe tens of thousands of troops could be sent. They could be sent for long periods of time. Uh, that's, that's a challenge, and so how we get our arms around that you know, I, I know, I think I can fairly speak for Democrats. Uh, we want to fight ISIL. We want to give the President the wherewithal to degrade and deter them, but we, want, we can't provide a blank check to this and a future President, because everything that's envisioned 
goes beyond this president. So uh, I wanted to use your expertise to try to put my arms around it, and I, and I see the challenge that we have. Let me ask you this. Following up on the chairman's questions, isn't it basically true that uh, unless we buy into something that is about getting rid of Assad, Turkey's really not going to engage here with us in the way we want them to? Um, the Turks have not indicated that uh, to me in our conversations. I think we share the same uh, goal with respect to Syria, and that is that uh, the solution to Syria is not going to be determined by military force, that ultimately we, des we desire a political outcome in Syria that is the will of the Syrian people, and that that uh, outcome is one that does not include Bashar al-Assad. I think we share that goal with Turkey. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have not had in my conversations with the Turks uh, the, the requirement that we take concerted action against Bashar al-Assad as the precondition necessarily for the Turks to have any greater role in the coalition to deal with ISIL. Isn't it true that Turkey at this point still is allowing foreign fighters to cross its uh, borders into Syria? If foreign fighters get across the border from Turkey, it's not because the Turks are allowing them. Uh, again, I've had a conversation with them yesterday. I have watched them uh, grip this problem. It is a greater problem than uh, many of us uh, had imagined at the beginning. Uh, they have attempted to strengthen their uh, border crossing uh, protocols. Uh, we're seeking greater information sharing and intelligence sharing with them in that regard. Uh, we are restructuring some elements of the coalition. Uh, specifically to focus the capabilities of nations on the issue of the movement and the, uh, the dealing of foreign fighters through transit states, of which the Turks are going to play an important role in that, in that process within the coalition. So do foreign fighters cross Turkey and get into Syria? Yes, they do. Are the Turks permitting them to, to do that? I don't believe so. And I think that the Turks are working hard, uh, ultimately, to uh, take the measures necessary to staunch that flow as much as they can. Mm -hmm. One final question, Iran. Uh, Iran is in the midst of Iraq. It's in the midst of Syria. Uh, do we share mutual goals with Iran? Well, I'll say that our goals with respect to Iraq is that we return Iraq to the sovereign control of the Iraqi people and to the central government in Baghdad. Uh, my, uh, you think the Iranians share that view? Oh, I believe so. I, yeah. I, I believe the, the Iranians uh, would would believe that their interests uh, would consider that their interests are best served by an Iraq because they have very significant in, uh, influence in Iraq. Well, they they have regional interests, and uh, those interests are in fact in Iraq. We, that's not something that should surprise us or necessarily alarm us. Yeah. I'm looking beyond. So, if we think an accommodation with Iran to fight ISIL is good, the aftermath of that in Iraq, in Syria in Yemen and elsewhere, in my view, is, is not so good. And so sometimes we look at the short uh, game versus the long one, and I'm concerned about what the long one is. Well, Senator, I would not propose that we're accommodating Iran in Iraq at this particular moment. Uh, we're undertaking the measures that we're taking in, in Iraq with the Iraqis. Uh, we're not cooperating with the Iranians, but as you have pointed out in your, uh, your question presupposes, the Iranians have an interest in a stable uh, Iraq, just as we in the region have an interest in a stable Iraq. But that doesn't mean we're accommodating the Iranians by virtue of the actions that we're taking in Iraq. Thank you. Senator Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, General Allen, thank you for your service. Uh, I do not envy you your task. Uh, <laughs> in, in your testimony, you say that uh, ISIS has lost half its Iraq-based leadership. How, how do we know that? 
I'm sorry, say again your question, sir. You said you, that ISIS has lost half of its Iraq-based leadership. How do we know that? Do we, do we have pretty good intelligence from that we, standpoint? We actually do have pretty good intelligence on this matter. And uh, in, in the, the process of uh, tracking the, the elements within the senior echelons of uh, ISIL's leadership, uh, we have been tracking and systematically as we're able to find them dealing with them. You also said that uh, in the last six months, we have amply demonstrated that ISIL is a little more than a criminal gang and death cult, which now finds itself under increasing pressure, sending naive and gullible recruits to die by the hundreds. What's, what's your evaluation of the accretion versus degradation ratio? I mean, how, how many people are coming into the battle, actually being drawn and recruited by what they see in ISIS versus the people that, that really are dying? Well, I think that's a difficult uh, number to... Uh uh, is, is it positive or negative? Are, are, are more people joining the fight versus what we're able to uh, degrade? Well, I'd, I'd say two things. Uh, the numbers are up. And the numbers are up because we're now tracking the numbers in ways we haven't before. And I think the numbers are also up because of the so-called caliphate. Uh, and that has created, in some respects, uh, a magnetism for those elements that want to be part of this, uh, that want to uh, support uh, this uh, this emergence uh, within the, the, their own sense of their faith. Uh, and so that has created uh, a recruiting opportunity uh, for ISIL that they had not had before. So we're going to continue to track those numbers. Uh, it's not just a matter of dealing with those numbers in the battle space. Uh, we're dealing with those numbers by virtue of, of taking other measures. And as my testimony indicated, uh, we operate along five lines of effort. The military line is only one of them. An another line where I think we'll be seeing more traction be realized as time goes on will be the consortium of nations that are taking the necessary steps to make it difficult to be recruited in a country, to transit out of that country and ultimately get to the battle space. Plus, plus as ISIL, this so-called caliphate, as it continues uh, to receive blow after blow and ultimately be proven as not being inevitable or invincible, using that as an opportunity to truly message what this organization is to decrease its attractiveness to those who might otherwise be attracted and seek to move to the battle space ultimately to support them. And we'll take all those measures in concert, sir. So that kind of leads me to my next question. I mean, defeat sounds good, but can you describe what, what defeat looks like? It is that this organization has been rendered ineffective uh, in, the, in its capability of being an existential threat to Iraq. We're not going to eradicate or annihilate uh, ISIL. Uh, most of these organizations that we have dealt with before, there will be some residue of that organization for a long period of time to come. But we don't want it to have operational capabilities that create uh, the opportunity for it to threaten the existence of Iraq or other states in the region. We want to diminish its capacity to generate funding, which limits uh, dramatically its operational uh, decision-making and capabilities uh, to affect discretion with respect to its recruiting and its battlefield capabilities. We want to compete with it and ultimately uh, overcome or defeat its message in the information sphere uh, where it has achieved uh, significant capability and, and, uh, uh, and recruiting prowess. So across the, the many different uh, measures of our uh, lines of effort, we have uh, a sense of what we want to do in the physical sphere, how we want to deal with them in the financial sphere, 
and ultimately how we want to deal with them in the information sphere. And all of those together constitute, will constitute the defeat of ISIL. You, you mentioned the, the establishment of the caliphate. The article in the Atlantic really kind of laid out that that is a draw, that is a pull, that, that establishes a certain benchmark, a certain motivation for people being recruited. Um, it, it, it relies on territorial uh, gains and or holding on to territory. Is that part of defeat? Is deny them all territory? Did, Absolutely. Did destroy that so that caliphate no longer exists. So we're, we're talking about pretty much decimation, correct? That's what Secretary Kerry, that was the word he used, decimate. You know, a few, kind of like after Nazi Germany, you know, a few people scattered maybe around the world, but pretty well decimation. That's not exactly what I'm, I'm hearing out of you. Well, I, we can apply whatever term you'd like to. Decimation is, is clearly one of the uh, terms that we might apply to it. We want them to have no operational capability in the end. And that means break them up into small organizations that don't have the capacity uh, as it begins to attempt to mass to be a threat. Define a small organization. Now, again, I'm just trying to get some sense of what we mean by defeat. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds great, you know, denying operational capabilities. Are, are we talking about taking 30,000 down to... 500, are we taking 30,000 down to 10,000, broken up in 10 it, different groups? It, it, it's, it will take time. It will take time that will uh, ultimately be realized in a number of ways. It'll be by uh, breaking up the organization through kinetic and military surface uh, terrestrial means. Uh, it'll take time to reduce the message and the attractiveness uh, that gives it the capacity to regenerate its forces. It'll take time ultimately to deny it access to the international uh, financial system that gives it the capabilities of, of restoring itself or generating capabilities. All of those things together, if we deny them that access, if we can defeat their messaging in the information sphere and we can break them up into small groups that can't mass to be operationally significant, then that's defeat. And I'm out of time. Thank you, General. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and General Allen. <clears throat> thank you very much for your service, to our, your continued service to our country. We appreciate that very much. These are extremely challenging times and we're very proud of your leadership. Thank you, sir. You're urging us to be patient that this is going to take some time in order to achieve our mission of not only degrading but destroying and defeating ISIL. You believe, as I understand, that the authorizations previously passed by Congress give the, the uh, administration the authorization necessary for the use of force but I also understand you support the President's request to Congress? I do. I do, sir. And of course, the President's request for Congress is pretty specific on ISIL and expires in three years. It's clear that there may well be a need for a continued military U.S. presence beyond that three years. Uh, I would say a probably a need for military activity, U.S. activity in some form or another. Yes, sir. And I think that's an honest assessment. And, sure. and, I, and what the, if I understand the reasoning behind the request is that the current administration recognizes it'll be up to the next administration to come back to Congress to get the next Congress and the administration together on the continued commitment to fight terrorists and what use of force will be necessary. Uh, I can't answer that precisely, but it would seem that's a, a logical reason okay. for that. So, so my point is, why doesn't that also apply to 2001 authorization of force? Here we're talking about a threat that was identified last year that we are currently combating, 
recognizing that the campaign on use of force may well go beyond three years, but it's the prerogative of the next Congress and administration to define the authorizations that are needed. The 2001 authorization, which was passed against a known threat against the United States in Afghanistan, now still being used to a threat such as ISIL, wouldn't the same logic apply that Congress should define the 2001 authorization contemporary with the current needs to go after al-Qaeda? Um, I've, uh, I've traveled to, to many of the capitals of this coalition, and one of the things that has been clear uh, to me as I have traveled to these capitals has been this, the really substantial gratitude uh, of the coalition for American leadership and the willingness for America to act. Uh, and in so many ways, uh, these nations of the coalition see ISIL in a very different way than they ever saw Al-Qaeda. So they're grateful for our leadership, they're grateful for our willingness to act, and I believe that this AUMF, which is specifically tailored to ISIL, uh, with the very strong support uh, of the Congress, uh, gives not just the President the options that are necessary ultimately to deal with this new and unique threat but it also reinforces the image of American leadership that is, I think, so deeply wanted by our partners and so deeply needed by this country and ultimately by the coalition to deal with ISIL the way we want to. And I understand that, and it's limited to three years. That's right. Would you agree that our success in Iraq in dealing with ISIL very much depends upon the Sunni tribes taking a leadership role in stopping the advancement of ISIL, that it's difficult for the Shiites, it's difficult for, the, for Western forces to be able to get the type of confidence uh, in the community uh, to withstand the recruitments of ISIL? Uh, I'd put it slightly differently. I would, I would absolutely agree with you, but I think it takes decisive Sunni leadership as well mm -hmm. within Iraq. Uh, and that leadership is coming together. But the tribes will be essential to the outcome, and your, answer, your question is correct, sir. And what is your confidence level in the uh, government of Iraq and Baghdad in its uh, ability to work with the Sunni tribal leaders to give them that type of confidence that their centralized government represents their interests and protects their interests? Sure. It's, uh, it's a hard sell, Senator. Uh, because previously uh, we asked the Sunni tribes to trust the central government in Baghdad under Maliki. It didn't work out too well for them, frankly. Uh, but I have met with many of the sheikhs of the tribes of Al-Anbar and some other of the areas uh, of Iraq. Uh, and, and I've been pleased, frankly, very pleased at their, at their willingness to accept the leadership of Prime Minister Abadi and their willingness to accept the, the leadership of the Minister of Defense and the Minister of Interior in helping them ultimately to be the, one of the principal mechanisms by which we'll defeat Daesh uh, in that country. And that has been a very encouraging sign for me, frankly, uh, to see them not just uh, as a group of tribes, but also uh, as leaders of the tribes be public and forthcoming in their willingness uh, to support the central government in Iraq and in particular Prime Minister Abadi. Thank you, General. I really do appreciate all your service. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Senator Paul.
General Allen, thanks for your testimony. What percentage would you say is an estimate of how many of the official Iraqi army are Sunni versus Shia? I'll have to take the question, sir, and get it back um, to you. It's, it, well, right well, now, the standing army, uh, the preponderance is, uh, the, the majority is Shia, but I can't give you the numbers. Right. I'll take the question. The reason I ask it is sort of on the heels of what Senator Cardin is asking. Global security record, reports basically somewhere between 80 to 90 percent of the official Iraqi army being Shia. I think to have an enduring victory, uh, there's some question from some of us whether or not you can have an enduring victory and occupy Mosul and be seen as a legitimate government if you've got an 80 to 90 percent uh, Shia force. So I think that still is a, uh, a significant political problem and a significant uh, military problem as well. Of the uh, chieftains that fought in the surge, just an estimate, what percentage are engaged on our side now uh, fighting against ISIS? What percentage are on the sidelines, and what are sort of what percentage indifferent? Again, those are numbers that are difficult to give you with any precision. The ones that I fought alongside in, in 07 and 08, uh, the ones that I have spoken to, without exception, have indicated their desire to fight Daesh, to recover their lands, uh, to uh, ultimately return, in this case, Al Anbar. Uh, to the tribes and ultimately to Iraq. And so they've been very forthcoming in their desire to do that. Everyone that I have spoken to. And the chieftains are no longer in the area. They've been driven out of the area, the ones some, that you've spoken Well, to. many of them are. Uh, some have, uh, at great risk, uh, traveled out of the area ultimately to, to speak with us. But uh, they are. And uh, many of them are in Amman and they're in other places. With regard to uh, arming the Kurds, uh, there were reports a month or two ago that Germany wanted to send arms directly to them, but there were objections by our government saying everything had to go through Baghdad. Are uh, arms from our allies forced to go through Baghdad to get to the Kurds? Um, I'll take the question, but let me offer this. Uh, Baghdad has not disapproved any uh, requests that the Kurds have made for weapons. Uh, we have attempted to work uh, with Baghdad uh, to streamline to the maximum extent possible to reduce any delays that may in, inhibit or impair the uh, expeditious delivery of arms and equipment to the Kurds. You think this includes sufficient uh, technology and long-range weaponry to, um, to meet their needs and their requests? Well, all of that is coming. Uh, as you know, sir, we, uh, and again, through the support of the Congress, uh, we're training and equipping 12 Iraqi brigades, three of which are Peshmerga brigades, and the Peshmerga brigades will be armed and equipped with exactly the same uh, sophisticated weapons that the other nine Iraqi brigades will receive. We're destroying or abandoning equipment in Afghanistan. Is there any possibility that any of that could be transported to the Kurds? That's a question we should pose to the Department of Defense, but uh, I'll take the question. Thank you. Um, with regard to... Um, ultimate victory with regard to um, trying to get Turkey involved, do you think there's any possibility of an agreement between the, the Turks and the Kurds, particularly the Turkish Kurds, to uh, accept an agreement where there would be a Kurdish uh, homeland not in Turkish territory that would encourage Turkey then to participate more heavily? And is anybody in the State Department trying to uh, uh, come to an accommodation between the Turks and the Kurds? Uh, not to my knowledge. Take that message to him, too, please. Thank you. May I, Senator, if I may, on the, the one comment you made with respect to the uh, Shia and the, the Shia composition of the Iraqi security forces, uh, the 
the actions that will be taken in these towns are going to be more than simply those of the clearing force. Uh, what's going to be very important to recognize as well is there will be follow-on echelons behind the clearing force, which will be important as well. And we're working closely with the Iraqis uh, for the, the hold force, which will be, hopefully, the Sunni police, which will actually secure and provide support to the Iraqi population that will have just been liberated, the governance element, which will be familiar to those Sunni elements that will have been liberated, and very importantly, to have the Sunnis involved in what may be the most important aspect of the, of the clearance of Daesh out of those areas, which is the immediate humanitarian assistance necessary to provide for the relief and the recovery of the populations. So it, it's more complex than simply the clearing force. And, and while we may have to accept that there is a large presence of the Shia elements within the Iraqi military, uh, I know that there is a very strong uh, effort underway to ensure that the Sunnis are deeply engaged elsewhere and all the other aspects of the recovery of the population. And one just quick follow-up to that. I think you might get uh, more indigenous support from the Sunni people if you were leafleting the place as you're invading, saying it's an invading Sunni force led by Sunni generals, and that were announced. I think uh, our problem really was Mosul was being occupied by a Shiite force, and they didn't stay long. Once uh, push came to shove, they were pretty much gone. Thanks. Sir. Senator Markey. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, thank you, General, so much for your uh, service. Um, in the uh, authorization for the use of military force text that the administration provided to this committee, uh, it said that it would prohibit enduring ground forces. Uh, and this was meant to convey that large numbers of troops wouldn't be on the ground for a long time, whatever that means. Uh, I voted for the 2001 um, resolution, uh, and I'm reminded that the U.S. combat operations in Afghanistan were dubbed Operation Enduring Freedom. We are now past 13 years in that enduring fight, and that resolution, of course, was also uh, the basis for the justification of our actions in Somalia, in Yemen, and the administration is saying quite clearly that they oppose the repeal of that, and uh, that the operations that are go going on right now, in fact, are consistent with that 2001 resolution. Now, that causes great problems to me and I think to many members of the committee, uh, because even in the uh, absence of the passage of a new AUMF, the administration is maintaining that they have the authority uh, to continue, as they have for 13 years, under Operation Enduring Freedom. Uh, and so that obviously is a problem for us, because that sits there as an underlying authority for the next president, Democrat or Republican, who is sworn in on January 20th, 2017. Uh, and most of us will be sitting here then as your successor is sitting here, uh, and perhaps not with the same interpretation of the word enduring. So my questions then go to, is this going to open up a potential for an open-ended war in the Middle East? Um, will it allow for unfettered deployment of ground troops? Uh, and uh, ultimately, um, whether or not uh, we are opening a Pandora's box, especially in Syria, 
So my first question to you goes to um, President Assad uh, and what the goal will be underneath this authorization in terms of the removal of President Assad, which has been historically an objective that the United States has said is important. So could you tell us what President Assad and his removal represents as one of the goals that exists in training 5,000 troops in Syria uh, for the next three years in a row as the long-term objective after the defeat of al-Nusra and, um, uh, and ISIS? Well, our political goal, our policy goal, ultimately, is that, this, that the, the process of change of Assad's departure uh, should occur through a political process and that ultimately he should depart and should not be part of the, the future political landscape uh, in Syria. The role of the T&E program is to uh, first and foremost give those elements of the moderate Syrian opposition that we're supporting the capacity to defend themselves, to build uh, battlefield credibility, uh, and ultimately to use those elements, those forces, uh, to deal with Daesh in the context of our strategy to deal with Daesh. At the same time that we're building that capacity uh, in the moderate Syrian opposition, our, our hope would be to build within the political echelon of the moderate Syrian opposition a level of coherence and sophistication that the two together, the moderate Syrian uh, political echelon and the military echelon, uh, are the credible force uh, that will have a place at the table during that political process, which will ultimately see the replacement of Assad. No, I appreciate that, but it, it's, it just seems to me that that's a 10-year proposition, and, uh, and if that's the case, we should be talking in a 10-year period. We can finish Iraq perhaps over the next three years, but then that's a much longer process, and we should just under, understand what the, what the long-term goal requires from us inside of Syria, and just saying Assad's name over and over again, I think will just help us to focus on the ultimate objective that the Free Syrian Army is going to have in that country, and then what we're signing up for in terms of the long-term military uh, effort inside of that country. Uh, and, uh, and, if I, if I, and I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the opportunity to ask this one final question, which is the, the basic tension that King Abdullah was talking about, which is that of the Americans providing help to fight the war, but not claiming credit, so it does not look like, like a crusade inside of that region. Can you talk about that um, so that the people in the region do not view this uh, as a US-led coalition uh, against ISIL, uh, because ultimately that then comes back to haunt us? And that was the message that we're receiving from all across the Middle East. Well, I think, uh Senator, as your question presupposes, uh, King Abdullah has, of Jordan uh, has, been, uh, has been very clear uh, throughout uh, this the period of this coalition uh, that in the end, the solution to the problems of the region must, must not only look like but must be a function of those states within the region to take concerted action supported by the United States and supported by a broader global coalition for those concerted actions to be successful. It's very important, obviously, that the solution have an Arab face and a Muslim voice uh, with respect to dealing 
uh, with the so-called caliphate and, and all that it has brought to the region. And the, the king and other uh, Muslim and Arab leaders in the region have been very clear uh, on the desire that they not just appear, but really are exercising uh, leadership uh, frontally in, in this process. Dang. People in that region view it that way right now. I think that has to be our goal, though. We just have to switch it so that it's not us. Uh, and I think Senator Paul is referring to that, that it has to be a, uh, an indigenous Muslim-led effort. Uh, and I don't think right now that's the internal view. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. General Allen, thank you for your service to the country. I followed you on TV closely the last couple of months, and I thought you'd done a great job. Thank you, sir. Am I correct? We're operating currently in the Middle East under the 2001 AUMF? Yes, sir. Is that correct? That's correct. Would it be a fair statement to say the one the President has sent to us to consider is actually a limiting AUMF compared to the 2001 authorization? It is specifically intended to deal with the threat of ISIL. That is correct. But, but, in but it's limiting in the authority the President would have primarily by the interpretation of the enduring phrase. Is that correct? Uh, enduring and the uh, expectation, as he has described it in, in the proposed legislation, on the size and the kinds of forces that might be applied, measures that might be applied. That's correct. Like Senator Markey, I voted for the 2001 authorization when I was here. Uh, it came on the heels of 9-11-2001. <clears throat> it was passed at a time when Americans had American flags on their windshields and their front doors, and American businesses had flags raised, and the patriotism in our country because of the terrible attack against our country was at an all-time high, at least in my lifetime, in my, my memory. Are we going to have to wait for that type of event again to happen to us before we use whatever it takes to destroy this evil? Meaning, meaning ISIL and looks like them? I think we're taking those measures now to get after the evil that is ISIL. And it's, it's an evil we haven't seen before in a very long time. Just today, the FBI rolled up uh, three individuals in this country that were intent of either joining or doing, joining ISIL in the battle space or doing ill to the American people. And, uh, and as long as we're at the front edge of this and taking those kinds of measures, I think uh, we have the possibility of keeping it from becoming something that could look like a 9-11. In your printed statement, and I assume it's part of your, part of your remarks that you said verbally, you said it will ultimately be the aggregate pressure of the coalition's activity over multiple mutual supporting lines of effort that will determine a campaign success. That's correct, sir. What are those mutually supporting lines that you're referring to? First, working very closely uh, within the coalition and more broadly uh, in the, the community of nations uh, to limit the flow of foreign fighters, uh, to deal with uh, the measures, to take the measures necessary to deal with the ability to limit ISIL's capacity to generate revenue, ultimately to support its operations and to give it discretion to take action against us or potentially our allies, uh, to provide support to those uh, elements of the, the population in the region that have uh, been uh, displaced by virtue of uh, the activities of ISIL or have been directly suppressed by the, uh, the boot of ISIL's uh, conquests and subjugation, and then very importantly to work together uh, to, uh, in the information space, ultimately to defeat the idea of Daesh. Uh, and the coalition's working very hard in those areas. I've just come back from Southeast Asia where I met uh, with uh, leadership of several countries there. They are watching with great interest and concern uh, 
those things that are, that are uh, occurring in the Middle East, which could spread uh, into their region, and they're interested in joining us in ways that can limit the ability of those organizations there to travel to the battle space, uh, or to limit their ability to directly challenge the authorities of those countries. So it's not just the countries of the Middle East, it's not just the countries of Europe, it's the countries of Southeast Asia. And, and very importantly, uh, within the context of the multiple lines of effort, uh, working very closely to outreach to the, the indigenous populations of these countries in ways that can uh, dispel the image of this so-called caliphate, in ways that can work with religious leaders and tribal leaders in those countries with populations that may be at risk, as we work with teachers and clerics and families to reduce the attractiveness of Daesh and this kind of an extremist uh, message. Uh, and the combination of all those activities together we think will pressure and ultimately put the kinds of pressure necessary on Daesh, first to defend ourselves and ultimately to defeat the, the organization. On that point, and very briefly because my time will be up in about 45 seconds. Yes, sir. Are we doing enough to counteract the use of social media and technology to communicate exactly what you're talking about that they're doing? Because what, what you heard about in Southeast Asia and what I've heard from on some trips I've taken is the fear they'll use social media and the modern communication mechanisms that we have today to spread their ideology and their fear around the world? Are we, are we attacking that as much as we should? They're doing it now. Uh, and it, it is, in fact, an explicit uh, objective within our efforts, within the counter-messaging line of effort among the many nations involved to do just that. Uh, obviously in, in nations where, there, where free speech is an issue, uh, that we have to accommodate that aspect uh, of uh, our relationship with industry that owns these platforms to ensure that we're either able, able to uh, interdict that message or work with industry to remove that message uh, with, with, in its own content. So we're working very closely, actually, with uh, industry and with our partners uh, to counter that message across the, all of the social media. Thank you for your time and your service. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Senator Boxer. Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez. Um, General, thank you so much for your dedication to this nation. I want to thank the President for the wisdom he showed in, in appointing you this, this, as this special envoy. I find your presentation to be very direct no frills, just straightforward, and I appreciate it. Um, under uh, Article One, Section 8, Congress has the power to declare war. I know you agree with that, yes? Yes, ma'am. All right. So I hope you could then understand why we would want to be very precise when we do that, because we're sent here by a lot of people who have a lot of kids who serve in the military, and they're the fabric of our community, so we want to be careful. And um, I just want to say, I'm not even going to ask you to expand on this enduring word, because you've said it very clearly. Your definition is uh, no enduring presence could mean a two-week presence of combat boots on the ground, American combat boots on the ground, or a two-year presence of American combat boots on the ground. And that answers a question the Democrats on this committee have been searching for uh, this, this definition, and I think what you have proven with your honesty here is there is none, because it's the eye of the beholder. When you say to me, if I vote for this no enduring combat presence and I'm sending my kids there in my state for two years, I would argue with you, you've misinterpreted it. Yet the Congressional Research Service says 
there's really no definition. And if I wanted to take an administration to court, because I would say, as a member of Congress, I said no enduring presence, CRS says I wouldn't have a legal leg to stand on, because there's no definition. So I just think it's very important the administration hear this once again. I mean, I know poor Senator, uh, Secretary Kerry had to hear it over and over again from our side yesterday. But we're very uncomfortable with this language. And when uh, Senator Menendez was chairman, he cobbled together a really good AUMF that united all of us on our side because he essentially uh, said no combat troops with these exceptions. And he put in the kind of exceptions I think you would agree with, special forces operations, search and rescue, protecting personnel. And we would urge you, please, to go back and take a look at it. Um, I just feel very strong. Now, I want to ask you questions that have nothing to do with that, because I think you and I would probably disagree uh, on, on that subject. There's no point in going over it again. But I am very concerned about US military support for the Kurds. And you answered the question in a very sure way, which is wonderful. You said, oh, no problem. However, the Kurds aren't saying that. So I want to call to your attention a recent interview with Bloomberg View just three weeks ago, um, the head of the Kurdistan Regional Security Council expressed concerns about our commitment to the Kurds. And these, <laughs> these are our boots on the ground. These are our boots on the ground. He said, quote, we're starting to have doubts that there might be a political decision on what sort of equipment should be given to the Kurds. We are fighting on behalf of the rest of the world against this terrorist organization. We are putting our lives on the line all we ask for is the sufficient equipment to protect these lives. So I need you to respond to that. Is that off base? What do you think about that? Do you take that comment seriously? Is it, does it concern you? Well, I listen very carefully to what the Kurds have to say. <clears throat> and they have, in, in so many ways, demonstrated uh, battlefield excellence and courage that uh, should elicit all, uh, all of our respect. Uh, but we have worked very carefully and very closely with the Kurds, uh, and your question presupposes and is correct uh, that uh, American support to the Kurds has given them the capacity, and more broadly and more recently, coalition support to the Kurds has given them the ability to do much of what they have been able to accomplish. The recovery of Mosul Dam, the, the seizure of Kissick Junction, the, de the successful defense of Guerre, uh, the many things that they have done is because the coalition has been in close support with them. At the same time, in several different rounds, we have worked very hard with coalition members to respond to Kurdish requests for equipment. And that equipment has been flowing in. Uh, also, in the context of the uh, $1.6 billion that was appropriated for the train and equip program for the 12 Iraqi army brigades, three of which are Peshmerga, they're getting exactly the same uh, sophisticated equipment okay. at the, let at me, the, let me get you at the Iraqi My, my question was not about how good they are, we, we agree. They are saying they do not feel they have enough equipment. And I'm just saying, you're saying everything is rosy. They're complaining about it. And I just want, as one senator, I, I can't speak for anyone else. They are our boots on the ground. And we need to get them what they need. I know there's pressure from certain factions. But if, if they're going to be our boots on the ground, We've got to give them what they need. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Rubio. 
Thank you. First of all, General, thank you for your service to our country and for your willingness to come back in and, and help with this new endeavor of great difficulty. I want to start out by just saying, I know we're not debating the authorization for use of force, but I do want to ask you, because of your experience in these affairs in the past, it's my understanding from our review of the process that only two times in our history has Congress authorized the use of force with limitations, and both were UN peacekeeping missions. And so the, the, the question that I would have now is, if our objective here is the defeat of ISIS, uh, would it not be more prudent to authorize the Commander-in-Chief to move forward in that regard and allow him as Commander-in-Chief and any future Commander-in-Chief, whoever uh, they may be, to decide uh, what the appropriate strategy is moving forward to ultimately defeat them, if that's the ultimate goal? What would be wrong with simply authorizing the President to defeat them? Well, the strategy that the President has approved, in fact, does uh, envision the defeat of Daesh. No, I understand the strategy does. I just, for purposes of an authorization from Congress, and I understand you've endorsed here today what the President wants to do, and, and I understand uh, uh, that perhaps that's what the President thinks he can get passed. But from a military point of view, would it not be more appropriate to simply authorize the President to do whatever it takes to defeat them? Um. The President needs the options that he that should be available to him ultimately to defeat Daesh. Okay, my, my, my second question is that is it possible to defeat ISIS without them ultimately being defeated by someone on the ground? Someone's going to have to confront them eventually on the ground yes. uh, and defeat them there. Has there and you can update us on efforts, and I've seen in the past some conversation among some of the regional countries about the potential for a coalition of, of armed forces brought together, the Egyptians, the Turks, the Saudis, perhaps some of the kingdoms, uh, Jordan, et cetera, who could provide a coalition of local forces who could play that role with, with significant U.S. assistance from the air, logistics, intelligence, et cetera. Has there been any progress made in that? Is that something that's actively being discussed with those nations? Um, Senator Rubio, I would, uh, I would really prefer to have this particular part of the conversation at a closed. Okay, session. I understand. So we can, let me move on then to a separate topic, and that is the, the nature of this conflict. ISIS has already proven that they're going to move into, for, for a group of this to take root and take hold and actually be able to grow, they need ungoverned vacuum spaces that they can operate from. That's what's perhaps attracted them, for example, to Libya, not just the access to a port town, but the ability to operate uncontested in terms of another government, et cetera. I, I, it is important to understand that as this conflict continues, uh, the possibility continues to grow that ISIS, in addition to being based in Syria and Iraq, will also look to other places where they can set up nodes of operation. Libya is an example, but per, potentially training camps in Afghanistan. Any place where a vacuum opens up is an attractive and appealing place for them to move operations. And therefore, as we put forth our strategy and as the Congress deliberates the authority it gives the President, that reality needs to be taken into account, correct? I agree, yes, sir. Okay. My last question is about the nature of this conflict. Uh, you know, it's been talked about in the past that ISIS is some sort of, and they certainly are, a group of monsters that take on these acts of extreme violence, but, but these are not just random acts of extreme violence. Uh, this is a group who has a, their barbarism has an, a purpose. At the end of the day, it is to purify, in their mind, that region to their form of Islam at the exclusion not just of non-Sunni Islam, but ultimately, but especially of non-Islamic populations. And, and in that realm, it is clear that, that Christians and Yazidis, but recently we've seen Christians in particular, 
are in increased danger in this region, and they specifically target Christian populations for barbarity, both as a way to shock the world, but also as an effort to carry out their ultimate goal of, in their mind, quote-unquote, purifying the region for Islam. Is there not a deep religious component to ISIS's strategy here? They're, they're, they're clearly, as part of their effort, trying to, again, using a, a term they would use, not one that I necessarily uh, enjoy using, but cleanse the region of infidels and non-believers, and in that realm, they have specifically targeted Christians for these sorts of atrocities that they're committing on now an ongoing basis, as we saw yesterday again. Uh, I would say yes to that. They, the interpretation that they apply uh, to all of those uh, segments of the population that live within the area that they control uh, has permitted them uh, to do the things that they have done uh, to certain elements of the population. Uh, so I absolutely agree with you. Their interpretation of their responsibility under this so-called caliphate is to take action against certain elements of the population and treat them one way and certain elements of the population and treat them another, another way. It's based on their historic interpretation. Thank you, Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, General Allen, um, for this service. I also want to thank you. you. You did very significant, important work with respect to trying to provide a security roadmap for the West Bank in the event of a peace deal between Israeli and Palestinian leaders. Whether the leaders will do what their citizens want them to do and find such a deal is up to them. But it shouldn't go unnoticed that you worked very, very hard on that and you have put in place a template for security on the West Bank that is a, a, a very good thing in your work then and in this context really in the best traditions of American diplomacy and I want to thank you for that. Thank you, sir. I, I want to make a comment about ends and then ask two questions about means. Um, I, I, I will pick up, Senator Johnson was quizzing you about what is the de defeat of ISIL. They're not a state. They they say they're a state. They're not. They're they're not a. They're not Islamic. They say they are. They're not. They're a mutation of Islam. And you even talk about defeating the idea of ISIL. I agree with you. They're just sort of a, an ideologically driven death cult. And so as we grapple with the authorization, we really have to kind of grapple with this question of what does defeat look like. Um, I'm very practical about this. I want to protect Americans from ISIL. That's what I want to do. I want to protect Americans from ISIL, and I want to protect our allies who ask for our help. The defeat of the ideology, the death cold, you know, fantasy that they had, it, we could be chasing after a, a phantom by trying to do that. But I want to protect Americans, and I want to defend our allies who ask us for that. On the means side, a question about the ground troops issues. In the last three weeks, we've had meetings with two leaders from the region, King Abdullah and today the Emir of Qatar. King Abdullah said, this is our fight, not yours, and basically suggested uh, that U.S. ground troops would, would not be a good idea. The Emir of Qatar was actually even more uh, straightforward about that today. He said, I don't want American ground troops in. He, he actually, it, we didn't suggest this to him, he brought up the notion that American ground troops may be a recruiting bonanza for ISIL, may change the, the notion of what the fight is. It's against the West, now we can really recruit I people. think that's accurate. And so, I, I, so this is, you know, the, the, the ground troop thing is a wordsmithing issue, but the wordsmithing is subsidiary to the bigger issue, which is, you know, do we become an occupier? Do we become a recruiting tool for ISIL? The, um, King Abdullah's notion, you know, this, this terrorism is born and bred in the region. The U.S. didn't create it. 
the region has got to stand up against it. If the region is not willing to stand up against it, there's virtually nothing that the U.S. can do, no matter how many resources we put into it, that will ultimately lead to, lead to a success. We can't police a region that won't police itself. So I'm kind of interested, for, forget about the wordsmithing, but when the leaders from the region say American ground troops are a bad idea, um, that's pretty, that's a powerful thought to those of us who are going to be voting on authorization. Sort of, how, how would you respond to that notion that the presence in any significant way of American ground troops changes the character of this and makes it the West against ISIL rather than a region needing to police its own um, extremism? Well, I, I do agree with both the Emir uh, and the King. Uh, the presence, the infusion of a large, uh, and I think this is where they would be a little more precise if given the opportunity, the, the presence of a large conventional maneuver force would change the, the nature of the conversation. Uh, but it's, it's really important to understand that uh, during Iraq and during Afghanistan and, and, and the way we have responded to other similar uh, challenges around the world, the United States brings to bear uh, a variety of, of really important capabilities. Uh, the, the first is the capacity of our strategic leadership. Just our leadership alone has brought to, brought to bear uh, 62 nations against this challenge. Uh, our leadership uh, brought to bear the first night of our strike operations, five, five Arab Air Forces flying along on the wing of the United States Air Force in strikes against ISIL targets in Syria. That's not anything that any of us could have imagined a year ago. So our strategic leadership counts uh, as, an, as really an enabler to this process. Uh, other ways and means, and your question is really important, other ways and means that we can bring uh, success to the Arab solution to this uh, is providing technical support, uh, intelligence support, uh, focused uh, special operations strike capabilities, uh, the training and equipping that we're doing today, some of which can be done in country, some of which can be done offshore in, uh, in partner nations, uh, the aggregation of those, those uh, activities undertaken with partners in the region ultimately to achieve the ends that we seek. Uh, the United States really has, uh, and our coalition partners, really have many means at our disposal, from leadership all the way through to potential for special operations strike, uh, to give uh, our Arab partners exactly what they want, which is the capacity for them to be the defeat mechanism in the end of Daesh. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Gardner. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, General Allen, for your service and your time uh, and uh, testimony today. Uh, and uh, I, again, we have to recognize that ISIS is a real threat to this country, and it requires a comprehensive strategy. Uh, and the commitment to their total destruction, I think, is uh, the only thing that we can, we can accept. Um, I'm glad the President has made the effort to, to forward the AUMF to Congress. Uh, obviously look forward to working with the President on the AUMF and uh, this committee. In the letter that the President transmitted along with his language for the AUMF, he stated, and I'll quote, I have directed a comprehensive and sustained strategy to degrade and defeat ISIL. As part of the strategy, U.S. military forces are conducting a systematic campaign of airstrikes against ISIL in Iraq and Syria. It's my understanding from the testimony that you've provided to us today that the U.S. has conducted around two, about 2,500 
airstrikes. Is that correct? That is correct, sir. And that's uh, since the since Operation Inherent Resolve began on August 8th. That's the time frame, the 25. Okay, and uh, that an average of about 10 airstrikes a day. And so the question I have is: Is the pace of uh, the operation sufficient to eradicate ISIL at this point? Well, eradication is not uh, the end state that we're uh, we're uh, seeking at this particular moment. Uh, our hope, uh, hope is not the, the term I want to use. What our expectation is, uh, given the strategy, is that the combination of U.S. and coalition air power in conjunction with the, the training and equipping of Iraqi forces and ultimately Syrian forces will, over time, give us the strategic outcomes that we desire. So it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen over a period of time. But the combination of all those things together is what we anticipate will permit us to achieve the objectives of the strategy. And so what, in, besides the airstrikes, then, does the President's comprehensive and sustained strategy envision? Several things. Uh, the first is to provide support to the stability of the Iraqi government, which is essential. And we're, we're doing that. We're working closely with the Iraqi government uh, with respect to reforms uh, in, the, in partnership with the Abadi government, which is inclined uh, to see it that way. Uh, working closely with the Iraqi security forces uh, to prepare them ultimately for a long-term uh, counteroffensive, uh, which will uh, remove Daesh from the population centers and ultimately eject it from the country. Uh, we're working uh, as an international coalition on behalf uh, of Iraq uh, to pressure uh, Daesh's uh, capacities uh, to generate funds and resources necessary for its long-term survival. Uh, we're working as an international coalition uh, to staunch the flow of foreign fighters to the battlefield so that Daesh has difficulty in replacing its combat losses. Uh, we're going to work uh, very closely uh, as partners to share intelligence uh, so that we are working with the Iraqis to give them a clear picture of what we understand Daesh to be, uh, but also between and among the members of the coalition that we can defend ourselves and our homelands uh, from the potential for Daesh activities uh, within the United States. And then, of course, we're working very closely uh, with our partners to provide humanitarian assistance to so those elements of the population that will need to be recovered and relieved uh, as we liberate them uh, from the presence of Daesh in their population uh, centers. And then finally, uh, to work together uh, with Iraq uh, and our partners uh, to, to deal what I think is the decisive blow here beyond the, the physical uh, defeat of Daesh, which is the defeat of its idea and the defeat of its attractiveness over the long term. And the, the, the pace of operations which we discussed, if, with the passage of the AUMF, does that, does that change at all? Well, I think the what? pace of the operation uh, will be judged as time goes. You know, commanders uh, take stock of the operational environment and uh, ultimately resource the operations that uh, either uh, that, well, takes advantage of uh, opportunities that are availed to them by the changes in the operational environment. We could well find uh, that based on our current estimates uh, that the activities that we'll undertake in the counteroffensive will follow along the pace and the timeline that we anticipate. But we could easily find that uh, as the counteroffensive uh, unfolds that Daesh is, is unwilling to receive and defeat after defeat at the hands of the Iraqi security forces, which is exactly what we want to see and they may decide that it's time to pull out. So we may see that the operational environment uh, could change, and it's the responsibility of our very capable commanders, in this case, 
uh, Lloyd Austin and James Terry to constantly be monitoring the success of the unfolding uh, operation to ensure we're getting the most out of the resources that we have, and if we need more resources, that we ask for them. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, General Allen, thank you for your service. Uh, thank you for your answers to the questions. I agree with Senator Boxer. They're straightforward, very helpful. Um, I want to uh, build on some questions from Senator Menendez and Senator Boxer on the authorizing language that we have before us. Um, a lot of attention has been given to this phrase enduring, not as much attention given to the juxtaposition that's now been created between what are offensive forces and what are defensive forces. Um, just so I understand this, um, you've talked about what the potential limitation is on size of force or duration of force under the enduring limitation. But so long as the presence of troops is considered defensive, there is no limitation in this authorization of military force as to the number of troops or the duration of their time uh, in the conflict area, so long as they are considered defensive forces. Um, again, I'm not sponsoring the, the legislation, but the, I, I think your point is, uh, uh, is correct in that regard. It's, it's about offensive maneuver forces. I, I thought your answer to Senator Kane's question was, was definitive in that uh, you worried, as I know the President does, that uh, a large-scale deployment of troops could become uh, recruiting fodder for extremists as our presence in Iraq did over the course of 10 years. Um, do you think that that changes if our categorization of the forces are offensive or defensive? If we have 100,000 defensive troops, um, I don't think this president is going to authorize this, but this is a three-year uh, authorization, so the next president will get the chance to decide differently. Would it matter in terms of the ability for extremists to recruit as to whether our troops there were categorized as defensive versus offensive? Uh, I, uh, again, the, these are all individual uh, measures. And it, it depends on how the, the crisis has unfolded. It depends on uh, the region in which those forces uh, may be involved. Uh, it would depend uh, on the activities that may have occurred prior to the introduction of forces that we might call defensive. Uh, it, it's just not possible to give uh, a specific answer to that question. Um, you know, I, I would have a difficult time understanding how we'd have 100,000 forces in a defensive environment if we hadn't had substantial offensive operations to begin with, and that would, of course, change the regional uh, view and the perspective on our forces and the outcome. So um, I, I think that there will be occasions where we may find that uh, locations or facilities or concentrations of friends and allies need to be defended. Uh, the rationale that we would use with our regional partners for the insertion of our or uh, allied troops uh, to defend those locations or those populations uh, would be very, very important. Uh, and so I, I think each region or each of those circumstances would have to be judged independently. And do you have a sense, uh, and I know you're not the sponsor of this legislation, but you, you, were, you were there um, uh, as to what the limits of that word defensive are. If our forces were there uh, taking fire from an ISIL position uh, and needed to advance on that position to eliminate it in order to defend our troops, uh, I assume that that action um, in that time and space looking like an offensive action would still be considered 
defensive in the sense that it was necessary in order to defend our troops or coalition troops? Well, yes, in that, that particular example, yes. Um, uh, again, we would probably, prior to the deployment of those forces, have come forward with as clear an explanation as we could as to what defensive would look like in the context of accomplishing that mission and accomplishing those tasks associated with defense. You're gonna get stuck with a lot of hypothetical questions on these two phrases, enduring sure. and defensive sure. and offensive, simply because we're stuck with them, uh, trying to figure them out. Just one last question, if I, I could. Um, part of the success of the awakening um, was not just persuasion, but also the transfer of substantial resources to tribes. Um, we you know, effectively uh, paid tribes uh, in various ways uh, in order to compensate them for uh, their moving away from insurgencies and towards coalition forces. Um, what did we learn from that experience, um, and how does it educate us as we try to um, move forward a strategy once again, of trying to win over these forces. Yeah, that's a really important question. I, I was eye deep in that process. Yeah. And we did, in fact, provide direct support. And we gave that direct support to the tribes in so many ways because the central government was incapable of doing it. Uh, and when we provided that support, and ultimately the tribes made the strategic decision to side with us against al-Qaeda, as, as you well recall, uh, fundamentally, the operational environment changed very quickly in 07 and 08. I think what we learned uh, from that not, was not the fundamental change in the battle space that favored us. It was the long-term outcome of the Sons of Iraq, uh, which was the handover of the responsibility to resource the Sons of Iraq to the central government in Iraq. Uh, and that didn't work didn't out, happen. frankly. Uh, because it was never clear to us, I think, whether Maliki intended to support them or not. So in this case, uh, and the lesson is being applied today, in this case, uh, we seek in every possible way both to encourage and to support the central government to build those bridges now with the tribal elements by providing support to them, by being present in the training uh, process, and ultimately uh, ensuring that the linkage between the sheikhs and the, uh, the Iraqi civilian Sunni leaders that linkage now is affected with the central government, not, a, not in a handoff later. And in, that's uh, one of the most important messages or lessons that have come out of this. And so does that include uh, financial resources being transferred from the Iraqi government to these tribes? Is that one of our recommendations well, to them? Uh, yes. In the context, for example, of the 2015 budget that was just passed by the Iraqis, uh, there is a, a wedge in there for... Uh, the recruitment of uh, tribal elements and this indigenous populations from each province uh, into the National Guard organizations. And those National Guard organizations will belong to the governor. They'll support the police locally in the event that there's a crisis or will be nationalized, federalized, to support the army in the event of a national emergency. Uh, that, that entity will belong to uh, the Ministry of Defense they will be recruited into the Ministry of Defense, they'll be part of the National Guard Brigade, but they'll, they'll be paid by national funds. So the mechanisms underway right now, where we're training uh, tribal elements in Al-Anbar, for example, they're actually being paid now by the Iraqi government and armed by the Iraqi government. We're providing the training. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you, Senator Flight. Thank you. Thank you for your testimony. We've got a vote on, so I need to go quickly, but also ask just a couple of questions quickly. Uh, 
How important do you think, and I apologize if you answered this before I came, but how important do you think it is to have this AUMF? Uh, how important, important. Oh, oh, go ahead. I think it's extraordinarily important, actually. Uh, the United States has exerted great leadership uh, in bringing together these countries, ultimately to support the restoration of the situation in Iraq, its territorial integrity and sovereignty, and ultimately to help to deal with the, the to deal the defeat, the Daesh necessary in Syria. Uh, so it's very important. Uh, ISIL is, is, a, is a threat that is unique uh, in our time, certainly unique in the time that I have been in, in the service. Uh, and while the elements uh, of the AUMF will be properly debated between this body and the administration, and many of the members here today have brought up important points uh, for clarity or for continued discussion, I think that's extraordinarily important, the message that it sends that the administration is in a conversation and dialogue with this committee and the Congress on the issue. But most importantly, in support of the U.S. leadership globally on this issue, a strong bipartisan vote to support the AUMF complements the leadership the United States has exerted in this crisis. Well, well thank you. That's uh, certainly the case I've made, that uh, both our adversaries and our allies need to know that we it's exactly speak with right, one sir. voice here. Is, is there... Uh, one that's more important than the other in that regard, or is it uh, equally important for both of them to hear this message? Our, our friends uh, who are in the coalition uh, in the 21 capitals I've traveled to have been extraordinarily grateful for the American leadership on this issue. But what I want is for our adversaries to not be able to sleep at night because we have the, the unqualified support of the Congress uh, in our actions necessary to defeat this enemy. At what point is the impact of this AUMF diminished if we have language that is just, I mean, if we try to include every point of view and, and every nuance uh, as opposed to something straightforward that uh, we're in this to win? At what point does it become uh, less important? It would be difficult for me to answer, Senator, but I would just hope that the consultation between the administration and this committee puts the language in there that the president needs. Uh, to defend the American people, defend uh, our country, uh, but also to deal the, the defeat, the dash that it desperately needs. All right. Well, AMF, and other examples of AUMF, there hasn't been much change. We've basically done what the administration has asked for. There's been some amendments in recent AUMFs, but uh, by and large, it's been rather straightforward language, rather short. Uh, I, I frankly think the, the language the administration put forward is... Uh, is a good start, and uh, it may be amended some, but I would caution the committee and the, the Congress uh, in general, the Senate and the House, from going too far to make it all things to everyone and probably diminish the importance of yes, it. But, uh, but anyway, thank you for your service, and thank, thank you, you for uh, your testimony here. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Senator. Um, Senator Kane, I know I had a follow-up. Um, General Allen, I wanted to ask about one of the lines of effort that we are working on in a fairly significant way, and that's the humanitarian relief line. The, the U.S. is the most generous nation in the world in terms of humanitarian relief to refugees from Syria, but I, that the problem is getting worse in some ways because of closing of borders with Lebanon. There are too many refugees there. Jordan, probably the same thing. Turkey with border issues is probably less willing to just see waves and waves of of uh, Syrians coming over. And so what are we doing in tandem with the London 11 and other nations to try to deal with the humanitarian crisis of all of these displaced folks in Syria, whether they're being displaced because of Bashar al-Assad, ISIL, cholera outbreaks, 
weather desperate poverty that they're being displaced, and I wonder about our humanitarian efforts in tandem with other nations. I'll give you a partial answer, sir, and I'll take the question and give you uh, the, res the, uh, the ability of the department to come back. Uh, we obviously take that very seriously. Uh, we have the relief efforts that, as you properly point out, have been very uh, generously supported by the United States and others uh, to the, directly to the populations of Syria and Iraq. Uh, we have the, uh, the UN appeals, which uh, need a lot more assistance to bring those appeals up to 100%. Uh, we're in the depth of a winter right now, which has made this even more urgent and more uh, timely. We have the frontline states that are struggling uh, with the influx of uh, Syrian refugees, uh, Turkey, uh, Lebanon, and uh, Jordan. Uh, so we need to work closely with them to give them the kinds of support necessary uh, to ensure that uh, these demographic changes that they're experiencing in their countries aren't in the end destabilizing uh, to their stability and their, and their security. And then, uh, very importantly, uh, is the humanitarian assistance that will follow in trace of the counteroffensive when that ultimately uh, kicks off. It can be argued that the, the, the clearing operation will be important to remove Daesh out of the population centers and the police will secure the population. But we're going to find that these people have lived under indescribable uh, conditions. And so our ability to marshal and quickly apply the humanitarian assistance necessary to the female populations, uh, to the more, more broadly the liberated populations, uh, to the internally displaced persons that will come home as we begin to clear these population centers of Daesh, supporting their return uh, to their homes, uh, the, the necessary humanitarian assistance to the restoration of essential services, electricity, water, uh, and then ultimately uh, reconstruction. As, you, as your question presupposes, this is a huge bill and it's a huge regional undertaking. And uh, to I think uh, everyone's, uh, should be to everyone's uh, satisfaction or at least uh, optimis optimism, uh, many of the members of the coalition uh, have been very clear in their willingness to support the broader UN effort for the region and the frontline states and uh, a number of other of the uh, coalition members have put their hands in the air to be leaders of and supporters to that very important humanitarian effort that will follow uh, right on closely on the heels of the, of the clearing operation that will move Daesh out of uh, Iraq. So it's a multifaceted, multi-layer complex uh, issue. Uh, but in the end, the humanitarian piece, I think, is one of the death blows that Daesh will experience. I know in, in response to a question from the chairman, you indicated the complexities of no-fly zones. Um, you know, I, I just would commend the idea of a humanitarian zone inside Syria, probably on the border with Turkey or the border with Jordan or maybe both, um, that would be justified by UN Security Council resolutions already in place promoting cross-border delivery of humanitarian aid. That would be humanitarian zones for people who, whether they're fleeing Bashar al-Assad, ISIL, cholera, hunger, the winter, whatever it is, once the borders have been closed and they can't transit across the borders, I hope we would contemplate some form of safe haven for these citizens who are suffering so badly in what I think most have testified as the worst refugee crisis since World War II. That is correct, sir. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, and that would be in the form of a, 
of a some type of no-fly zone for that I, to work. Because no-fly has the military, you know, label right up front. I'd call it a humanitarian safe haven zone. But but definitely, I would I would want such a zone to be protected mm -hmm. from whoever might try to mess around with people who are refugees who are just seeking safety. Yes. Very good. Well, General, uh, I know you've got a hard stop in 20 minutes, and I think we've uh, you've certainly helped us in the ways that uh, we wanted you to help us. We appreciate your testimony. I, I would have one question, and that is you, in response to Senator Flake, uh, talked about the need for Congress to be behind the effort that is taking place with ISIL. Um, there have been differing discussions about the length of time um, from an AUM, AUMF standpoint, and is there anything about the, the time frame I know the president's asked for three, whether it's longer, shorter. Is there anything about that that you think uh, matters at all relative to those that you're talking about uh, appealing to our enemies and, and allies to, together? Well, our intent with respect to Daesh is to end its uh, abilities to, to deal that defeat to them as quickly as we can. Uh, if it takes longer than three years, my, my suspicion would be that we would come back to this committee and, uh, and request an extension. And if it was shorter than that, it wouldn't trouble you either? If it was shorter than that, it wouldn't trouble me at all if yeah. Dash were defeated in less than three years. No, no, no. no the, 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 it would not trouble us either. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> would the, does the length of time really particularly matter to you from the standpoint of the allies and those that we're defeating, is there, or is it just more Congress getting behind the effort um, in a bipartisan way? Well, I think it's the latter. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, I uh, called you over the weekend when I know you were on your way to Kuwait. I know you're on your way to CENTCOM now. Uh, I think you can tell by the respect that everyone has shown you today. We, we all view you as someone who's an outstanding public servant. We appreciate the way you've gone about your work. I know it's difficult. I know that decisions don't always get made in the manner or in the time frame that uh, someone like you that wants to seek this, get it, get this done in the appropriate way. But uh, I think your demeanor, uh, the way you talk with all of us is certainly very, very well received. We wish you well in what you're doing and hope you'll be before us again soon to update us. Honored to be with you today, Thank Chairman. You. Thank, Thank you, sir. You. Good day, sir. And with that, the record will be open until Friday for any questions. We would ask that you and your staff uh, respond to those in a fairly timely fashion and meeting is adjourned.